Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and East European Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Anna Fateva about her recent book, Do the Balkans Begin in Vienna? The Geopolitical and Imaginary Borders Between the Balkans and Europe, published by Peter Lang. Anna draws on novels, plays, and travelogues from the 19th and 20th centuries to explore the various forms the Balkan region has taken in Europe's political and cultural imagination. So welcome to New Books in East European Studies, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Well, we're very happy to talk to you today about your book, and I'm sure our listeners will find it as interesting as I found it reading it um, over the last few weeks. So just to start us off, will you tell us more about yourself and how you became interested in studying the Balkan region? Certainly. Um, I think uh, this question is especially important when it comes to this book, because actually without my origins, I wouldn't have become interested in this particular topic. So I do come actually from the former Yugoslavia, from the Republic of Macedonia, and I spent my earliest youth watching on TV the um, different coverage uh, of the wars of the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia. Uh, on the other hand, I'm actually a uh, double major of German and English, and you wouldn't think that someone who's dealing with German and English would necessarily uh, think about the Balkans. But coming from here and during those uh, wars and the chaotic um, feeling that I had and the very strong emotional responses that I had to the images I saw on um, TV networks, I came to think about the possible connections between actually the Habsburg monarchy and the Balkans with the very small knowledge I had in those days already. Um, and not until I actually got to the United States to take my PhD in German literature did I um, uh, have my topic clearly in my mind. And even then, it wasn't uh, exactly well defined until I met Professor Katie Ahrens from the University of Texas at Austin who told me that I would be the ideal person speaking all these languages in combination with German and uh, considering my interest to actually uh, talk about these um, relations which have not been actually explored uh, that well, uh, not that well researched. There's uh, research in history, primarily by Professor Ingrao, uh, with whom I had the fortune of taking a course while I was at Purdue uh, in my PhD studies, but not in uh, literature and what we call generally Austrian studies. And uh, so a whole new field opened and a very new one as well. That's great. It's always good to find those places where your uh, skills and interests line up with a, a, a place in, in the scholarship that needs to be addressed. So, in, of course, your book is about um, attempts to define the, the Balkan region. But I still think we need to start off with um, talking about what, what does Balkan encompass so can you explain that for us or how you um, approached defining the Balkan region for your book and also explain metonymic geography for us and how you uh, identified these four sub-Balkan regions that you define in your work? 
Right. So uh, actually, because of, again, uh, my experiences with the wars of dissolution of the former Yugoslavia, um, I have actually become acquainted with the question, dilemma, debate or conflict, even verbal, uh, as well as unfortunately military, of where the Balkans and, and Central Europe begins. And this is why I'm actually talking about both the regions in my book. Uh, and I discuss them both in the um, introductory chapter as well as in other chapters. Um, for example, the chapter on Slovenia and Croatia, where I think the name of the chapter is uh, Central Europe, uh, between Europe and the Balkans, right? So um, I have, uh, again, the interest uh, was actually more of a, the very original interest was more of a gut feeling, an emotional interest. And then, uh, of course, I realized as I was reading more and more that these boundaries are not exactly well defined. And when I was reading um, the first book, actually, on the Balkans, as such, which was, well, there were previous books before Maria Todorova's Imaginary Balkans, right? I've uh, read great books by Mazower, for example, a historian, a British historian, I think. Um, but uh, she, her book came right after the Dayton Agreement in Bosnia in 1995. And of course, um, it aroused great interest because of the uh, wars of dissolution of the former Yugoslavia. And there she discusses the northern bo- uh, border of the Balkans as a most disputed one. And the reason for it is because there was a time when, when neither the Croats uh, or nor the Slovenes wanted to be affiliated with the Balkans. They actually insisted that their uh, cultural heritage and thus identity uh, were entirely uh, Central European and as such had nothing to do with the remainder of uh, the former Yugoslavia, which was by Maria Todorova's uh, definition, which I find very good, but I only use it as a navigational principle. Um, defined by Byzantine and Ottoman uh, legacies. So the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, also I think better known as the Eastern Roman Empire, and then, of course, taken over by the Ottomans, who actually saw themselves as successors of this empire. But in European history, it was considered to be a disruption of the Byzantine Christian Empire because of the Islamic Ottoman Empire. But that's not what the Ottomans thought. They called themselves Romelia, which means actually the actual inheritance of the Roman Empire, which, by the way, did not exist in the way any longer. The Western Roman Empire perished already by um, at the um, under the attacks of the Germanic tribes uh, as early as the, well, it was a process, but I would say probably in the 6th, 7th centuries, it was already gone, whereas the Eastern uh, Byzantine Empire uh, endured all the way to practically the 15th century with the siege of Constantinople or Istanbul, and then it uh, eventually fell under Ottoman rule. And uh, because the Balkan region um, is very complex, uh, because of the different cultural affiliations, I have uh, decided to expand Todorova's definition, and also based on my simply personal uh, experience growing up in the the former Yugoslavia, we had different um, Balkan um, identities. I decided to expand on it and um, uh, develop four sub-Balkan regions, or sub-Balkans as they call them, uh, depending on which um, historical imperial indeed, um, or maybe also linguistic cultural influence uh, was predominant in them. And even Todorova says that, of course, some parts will be more Balkan than others. That's what you already said, and that was my starting point. So obviously, countries from the former Yugoslavia, like Slovenia and Croatia, would be the least Balkan, especially Slovenia, actually, because it never was part of the Byzantine or Ottoman empires. It never had any cultural uh, ties or never had any of its population belonging to the uh, Balkans. But because uh, Slovenia um, was in the former Yugoslavia and had cultural and economic ties with the remainder of the 
country which uh, indeed was uh, one way or another related to the Balkans, to the Byzantine and Ottoman empires, that would be the least Balkan region, I would say. Um, then there is another one uh, where we enumerate uh, Croatia and Hungary as most typical examples, um, which have a very solid central European identity based on their um, um, history of uh, Habsburg um, history, actually, belonging to the Habsburg Empire, which was a Catholic empire, although there were some, of course, with the, with the Reformation, there were some... Um, uh, uh, there were some conversions, of course, that have taken place. But with the Counter-Reformation, I think uh, the um, Catholic element became uh, much stronger. And uh, Croatia is especially uh, typical in that case, that it actually has a very strong Catholic identity, which is, of course, Western Roman, West, uh, Central European or Western European, and certainly not Byzantine. But uh, on the other hand, both Croatia and uh, Romania, uh, and Hungary, and Romania for that matter, actually, that belongs there too have experienced um, uh, periods of Ottoman rule because the Habsburgs and the Ottomans have been fighting for hundreds of years and precisely actually on the uh, territory of the former Yugoslavia, more precisely where Serbia is today and uh, the autonomous province of Vojvodina. And because of that, they are, I say, the um, in, if we start from the least Balkan region, they're the second <laughs> Balkan region, which is um, more Balkan, uh, than Slovenia, uh, but less Balkan than, for example, countries like um, uh, my native Macedonia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, etc., uh, which never had any direct connections to the Habsburg monarchy, only mediate, uh, intermediate connections, not uh, um, uh, direct. And this is the mo most Balkan part, I would say, which is because it corresponds to the um, definition of the Balkans entirely, that uh, as a combination of Byzantine and Ottoman legacies. And then, of course, there is another Balkan, which uh, um, there are some overlapping. So the Balkan, the, the fourth Balkan region is the Slavic Balkans, because the Balkans is um, are such a diverse region. That's also part of the um, uh, that's due to the Ottoman legacy, which was not, uh, didn't have a centralized administration, didn't have a very high literacy rate. So the identities were able to develop actually um, uh, independently and uh, they did not take part in the um, uh, printing uh, uh, um, tradition. Uh, the literacy was very, um, uh, very low. And so the vernaculars, the, what used to be considered dialects in Europe, actually consisted, con continued to exist uh, as languages for a very long time. So there are languages which are the only languages in the family, like Greek and Albanian, for example. And But they do not belong to the Slavic Balkans. There is actually a strong Slavic presence in the Balkans, and that would be the fourth Balkan region, where, of course, Slovenia and Croatia and Macedonia would belong, although Macedonia is also the other part of the Balkans. You know, the most Balkan and Slovenia, the least Balkan region. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of overlapping. And because of that, I insist on this metonymic geography that Irit Rogov actually introduced, that you have to consider um, that several things um, exist um, parallel next to one another in, um, in, in the temporality rather than historicity. So you should, should abandon the linear approach where, for example, that was pretty much the argument of those who said, well, Croatia and Slovenia don't really belong to the Balkans because they have been in the Habsburg monarchy. But they were also part of the um, uh, some interaction with the Balkans or actually Croatia also had um, part of its population living in Bosnia, Herzegovina, which is uh, unequivocally a um, Balkan country. And because of all these things which exist parallel next to one another, the um, principle of metonymy, which works, works with associations and contiguity, things next to one another, rather than metaphor, which actually 
takes the third of the comparison and ignores the two um, other uh, things that concepts that are being compared is actually the proper um, the proper approach, theoretical approach uh, to uh, the um, Balkan geography, which I also called uh, call a postmodern geography. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we'll get more into geography and all of those um, individual relationships to being Balkan more or less and with the Habsburg Empire. But I wanted to start where you begin at the book. Um, you start by analyzing travelogues published in the 1990s. And I'm interested, I was interested in the fact that you started in the 90s, given that your book has such a broad histor- historical scope. Uh, you sort of started at the end, so to speak, um, in a linear chronology. So why start in the 1990s and then work your way back? Well, again, part of it is that uh, my inspiration came from the unfortunate events of the um, last decade of the 90s, when the Balkans have become very topical and very interesting for um, the um, media audiences again. Another reason for it is because Todorova actually deals very extensively with the travelogues of the 18th and 19th century on the Balkans. So I thought, why repeat that? I'd rather actually have these travelogues um, to which I can actually also relate more closely, but also because the travelogue like Kaplan, uh, um, Balkan Ghost, or all the, the other two, actually in a nutshell um, condense all these previous centuries of history and um, in a way, that's the, also another metronymic approach. You can never talk about the last decade of the 20th century in the Balkans because you have to um, imply all the previous centuries, at least starting with the Ottoman conquest or even before that. And that was the reason why I felt that these travelogues should actually be uh, the, the core of this section, the 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do travelogues as a genre and these works in particular have to uh, say, or how do they represent the the kinds of things that you're arguing about the complexities of Baltic? Oh, sorry, I work on the Baltics, and I'm always when people are always saying Balkans, and I'm saying Baltics. So here <laughs> I'm going to say Baltics when it should be Balkans. So how do these these three travelogues that you look at um, demonstrate the kinds of uh, stereotypes and ways of thinking about the multiple identities in the Balkan region? Um, well, and why travelogue as a genre is so important. It's, um, they are uh, the travelers, of course, when a region is marginal in Europe, in the European consciousness, and also not really Western, but not really Oriental, then, of course, people uh, who travel and write about the region will um, analyze the region from the perspective of their own culture. It's very logical. Uh, there is no other way, as a matter of fact. And in that sense, I find Kaplan's uh, Balkan Ghost actually a very sincere travelogue. I obviously criticize the approach, but I find it very sincere on his part that he's, of course, um, he tries to, uh, that's the, he's also a journalist, so he tries to describe and explain in quotation marks this region to the American audience. So he draws comparisons which are not very fortunate with the Middle East, with Palestine and Israel, etc., but I understand why he does that. Uh, but of course, that's the problem when you're lost in translation, not translation of languages, obviously, but of cultures. On the other hand, he's very honest about the cultural complexity of the region. And he talks to someone in Croatia, and then they claim one thing, that Croatia is really just Central European, and uh, the rest of the country does not really belong to Europe because it's something Oriental, Ottoman. And then he goes to Kosovo, and then he talks to an Orthodox nun, and then she says, well, this is the bulwark of Christianity um, I um, think that um, the questions that he raises and the way he talks to his um, 
conversation partners are very interesting for me as well. Um, I assume that uh, for audiences, um, uninformed audiences, they could perpetuate the stereotypes, I'm sure. But that's why I actually asked uh, these questions, and that's why I call that section uh, the European twin brother or other, right, so depending on where you put the slash, that actually there are many similarities, but when you try to explain the Balkans, uh, or he actually, um, I, I write about his former Yugoslav trips, I, I focus on that, although he also writes about Romania, but uh, I focused on that because that's the, the place I know best. Uh, I think it's uh, very important also to read my questions. It's important to ask the questions when you read something like that. Um, but if his confusion, uh, perplexion is actually quite uh, clear, and I'm glad that he does that. Um, and I hope that comes across. I hope that I'm not too critical <laughs> towards his uh, travelogue. Um, the other two travelogues, um, the, the one by Milodor, who has a very interesting biography, he's probably a typical um, subject, human subject, um, carrying all those um, centuries of history in himself. I find him very interesting as a person because uh, he comes from Vojvodina, a region which was actually, um, well, it wasn't created, but uh, he's a Serb from Vojvodina. Uh, the Serbs to Vojvodina were invited by Leopold II, the Habsburg Emperor, because they were fighting against the Ottomans and uh, he granted them territory as gratitude. Uh, so that part of the history is there, um, the Austro-Turkish Wars, so-called. And then, of course, um, he um, becomes also uh, a Yugoslav from, from the first Yugoslavia, the interwar Yugoslavia. He carries that historical heritage with him. But of course, then he goes to Vienna and he decides to stay there. He's got all these layers and he has a very traditional, I would say, approach uh, because he talks about all the historical layers of this region, starting all the way from Celtic times. And I find it very interesting. And I like that because it gives um, a very good picture of the multi-layered identities of the nation and how many different cultures have actually existed there. And I like this idea that uh, it makes you feel rather small as a human of a certain <laughs> uh, historical period as, uh, in the present. Um, almost comforting that uh, history simply continues going on and we need to adjust. And then, of course, comes Handke's uh, travelogue, which is an extremely uh, complex narrative to begin with. I mean, we wouldn't call it a travelogue um, in that sense, I mean, those are a collection of short stories. And of course, he visits different places, but the narration is extremely dense. And um, he only has one sentence in the beginning that um, he visits one place where apparently Dante descended into the inferno. That's uh, up in Istria, uh, now in, uh, in Croatia, uh, on the border with Italy. Uh, and uh, then, of course, he continues writing in a very dense, uh, very postmodern style. Uh, there is no hierarchy of the objects described. He focuses on a bumblebee or um, on um, on a cicada in a tree or minuscule details. And uh, but at the same time, he metonymically represents the different cultural influences, starting from um, Istria over Split um, and then going into uh, to Skopje, to my native uh, town where I am right now, as we are conducting this interview. Um, he does not talk about linear history. He talks about now, but at the same time, he nothing escapes his attention. All the details are there. He hears, for example, a uh, the call of the Muezzin in Split, and Split is for the most part Catholic, and that's why you only see this um, Oriental element in the background. As he, and as he descends further to the south to come to Skopje to 
my native Macedonia, then uh, he uh, the cultural complexity increases, and uh, he sees that represented in the different um, uh, headwear, as he calls them, hats that people are wearing. And I find that um, a very poetic way of describing the cultural diversity without taking any stance towards history as positive or negative, traumatic, uh, wars. He uh, uh, ignores all that. And that is very interesting because he was very explicit politically uh, during the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia. He wrote a very explicit travelogue, which is actually the first most famous travelogue and strongly criticized the journey to the rivers, uh, um, um, Justice for Serbia. And uh, I, that was uh, overinterpreted. I didn't want to deal with that because it, so many things have been written about it. But this one is actually almost like, an, and that's why I say travelogues of war and peace. That's the name of the, uh, of the chapter. This is actually like an oasis, oasis of, of peace and um, tranquility amidst of war. It was published in 1995, so really just after the, the, the wars. Well, I, I do think that seeing those travelogues and your analysis of them um, set the stage to then go back historically and, and trace some of these threads and themes um, through each of the different um, now countries. And so your next chapter, you then look at Serbia. And I didn't know that Serbia had asked to join the Habsburg Empire in the early 19th century and was rejected. So that was really um, an interesting historical fact. But you used three plays by Jovan Popovic to explore the cultural and political ties between Serbia and the Habsburg monarchy. So tell us about these plays and um, that relationship, and in particular about Popovic's ambivalence to the Serbian nation-building project as is revealed in these plays. So I would like to go back to your um, um, very interesting footnote on that. You didn't know that um, Serbia actually asked for a uh, incorporation to the Habsburg monarchy. I would say that very few Serbs, if any, actually know, maybe a few historians, and that's it. I owe this information to my professor in Rao. And I had to read uh, <laughs> hundreds of pages, um, volumes, uh, thick volumes, on the correspondence between the Serbian insurgents and the Habsburg uh, officials during the uprisings. And there were several uprisings. They had this famous Black George, uh, Kara Georgia, uh, who was the leader of these uh, uprisings. And in the correspondence, you can see that they would very much like to, if it was possible. But it's not something that is uh, emphasized in Serbian historiography. That's very interesting. And so very few people know. And uh, I'm glad you remember that detail because it's, uh, it's an important detail. And then as far as Jovan Steriapopovic is concerned, um, so there are three, um, I would say, different um, plays. Um, I begin with Parvenu, then I move on to Belgrade uh, Once and Now, and then I go to uh, the Patriots. Um, so it's both about uh, cult cultural communication or intercultural communication and nation building. The nation building process is uh, strictly addressed in uh, Patriots. Um, whereas uh, Parvenu and Belgrade Once and Now deal more with the intercultural communication cultural systems, the Ottoman, roughly saying Oriental, and the Habsburg, roughly saying Occidental. Uh, the Ottoman, neither the Ottoman nor the Habsburg empires, in my view, are strictly Oriental or strictly Occidental because of the mixtures of peoples that they've incorporated and the territories. They're really also borderline um, in between empires, unlike, for example, France and Britain, which are very clearly Western empires, or, uh, I don't know, the Mongolian Empire is a very clearly uh, Asian empire. Um, so, uh, it's very interesting how he depicts the process of intercultural communication. I found Baba, Homi Baba, very instructive in describing this process of how actually the cultural signifiers get 
destabilized and how you see that um, practically cultures are always cultures in translation, that they can, they can never be uh, on their own, uh, entirely isolated. Um, and uh, however, I think that the Serbian culture is an especially good example of it because they have been really, they are the first bulwark between the Habsburg um, and the Ottoman Empire. And it's very uh, interesting to follow this process there. And um, on the basis of um, one character who is a comical character, it tries to uh, appropriate the Western values uh, as the Serbs see them in Vojvodina, which um, I suppose you could translate as women emancipation also. <laughs> but she uh, a bit uh, misunderstands that a bit. Uh, she also misunderstands the values of the Enlightenment. And of course, her, her linguistic knowledge is just uh, uh, ridiculous. It's portrayed as hilarious because um, she pretends to be able to speak German and French and doesn't, whereas, of course, Popovich was multilingual and he was fluent in German. And he was influenced by German uh, playwrights, the Austrian playwrights more specifically. Um, I find that communication very interesting. There is a very strong conflict um, in that in the first play, Pardon You, uh, where the one group of characters defends the old rural Serbian culture, uh, and they are the positive characters. And the um, the Pardonu, this lady, middle-aged lady, um, and that uh, imposter poet um, uh, actually uh, embody the um, the not really the Western cultural values, but uh, the um, failed appropriation of the Western cultural values. And uh, it's, it's very important to read that play uh, together with Belgrade Once and Now, because in Belgrade Once and Now, those values, which um, Parvenu tried to introduce in Vojvodina, which is further up, it's in the Habsburg monarchy, have already reached Belgrade, which was never part of the Habsburg monarchy. It was for 15 years, uh, very short. Um, and uh, there you can see that um, uh, Popovich has He's ambivalent. He has, I think, he adheres to the patriarchal values of the Serbian culture. He's not exactly very uh, big into women emancipation. Um, and on the, on the other hand, he's an, uh, a thinker of the Enlightenment. He has really appropriated the values of the Enlightenment. And to him, um, a proper knowledge of the language and of the cultural norms is very important. Um, but yet you could see that he's usually... Um, portraying characters as positive who defend their traditional values. The problem is there that, of course, the question is what the traditional values of the Serbian culture are. It's very interesting that the grandmother who comes to visit Belgrade talks about Turkish coffee and a Turkish uh, wear, uh, um, headwear uh, and feels that they are the actual authentic Serbian values. But, of course, she calls them Turkish uh, and she calls them and they are actually Ottoman, really. Also, the patriarchal um, character of the culture is um, a result of the Ottoman influence. And that, again, goes back to Homi Baba, that every culture is actually a continuous continuous process of translating the cultural signifier. Now, in Patriots, uh, that's uh, really the nation-building project, definitely. That's um, uh, a very uh, interesting moment, again. It's the pan-European revolution of 1848, when the nations... Um, the nation, the national consciousness and the nation concept uh, got a big push and uh, everyone all of a sudden started feeling as a Hungarian or Serbian rather than a Habsburg subject. Uh, and of course, those ideas uh, didn't start in Serbia. They started or in Vojvodina among the Serbs, but they, they started in um, Western Europe and um, also in Hungary. And um, uh, but you can see, um, first of all, you can see how the nation is being um, narrated and constructed precisely on the example of those um, Serbian immigrants to Vojvodina 
who first defend the Hungarians because they bring about liberalism and new values which they find appealing in the first uh, act, in the second act, and then all of a sudden become ardent Serbs. <laughs> and they change the symbols as well. And that has an extremely comical, a strong comical effect on stage. And I find it also um, very typical of the nation-building process of all Balkan nations, not just the Serbs. I think each and every one of our nations, I mean, in Macedonia right now, there are some very interesting things going on. Um, there is a, a an attempt of constructing the nation by going back to some purported ancient origins uh, from the um, ancient world. And it reminds me of these things where the symbols become so important, the visual, whereas um, the mouthpieces of the author in the in the play say it's not about the symbols, they are arbitrary. I find it extremely modern or even postmodern to understand that symbols are actually arbitrary and you shouldn't adhere to them as if they were uh, authentic and uh, universal and um, uh, genuine. Uh, but it is about the what um, uh, Baba says, societas, which is really the civil society, the civil society of rules, of uh, laws, and of protection of the uh, civilians, of the of the citizens. Uh, and I find that play, uh, time and again I get really impressed by Popovich because he's very, very modern in his uh, understanding. And quite honestly, I haven't come across that sort of modernity in other authors of that time, European authors, which goes back again to my feeling that the Balkan uh, geography is always postmodern because the change of rule is so um, uh, quick, so frequent that uh, people actually uh, have this double consciousness, awareness about the, uh, the arbitrary symbols and uh, the narration of the nation. Mm. Um, I was surprised to see that all three of these plays are comedies because often when um, there's literature being analyzed in terms of nation building and nationalism, they tend to be uh, dramas. And you argue for the appropriateness of comedy for depicting the process of nation building. So why is that? What does comedy offer that drama doesn't offer to look at this? In the uh, specific Balkan, um, well, there are two factors here that are important, the specific Balkan context and also the 19th century. So the 19th century is the century of sentimental comedy, of the so-called Bürgerliches um, Trauerspiel, that's, I think, the German burger drama, they call it, the burger tragedy, right? Uh, which is different from the classical tragedy, where you have the concepts of the sublime and you have royalty, etc., etc. First of all, these are nations without royalty. So, in that sense, uh, you can't deal with the typical tragic uh, situation and concept. You need royalty for, for the classical uh, uh, tragedies. The other thing is, because of this frequent change of rules, since symbols are arbitrary and people have to adjust very quickly, uh, it's something which is always fluid. Uh, and that is not something that you want in tragedy. Tragedy is about stable structures, about longevity, about... Um, going back to the original ritual and granting uh, coherence to the society. Comedy is about the flux, about the new developments, and comedy is also the genre of the burgers in the 19th century. It's the genre of the liberated burger class um, as opposed to the um, uh, to the nobility. Uh, and if someone is made fun of, then, uh, uh, then are the, the nobles or those who pretend to be. But especially in the Balkan context, I think uh, these, um, this genre is uh, very important for the nation-building process. And uh, especially with patriots, uh, it's, um, I say, however, that it's actually a tragic comedy. because, um, And that's the, the advantage of, of comedy as well. As Walter Benjamin says, uh, that comedy can turn into tragedy, whereas tragedy can't turn into comedy. And this is why you have this tragic potential underneath, the tragic tinge, 
Uh, of course, if you imagine the context, there were victims when the Serbs were fighting the Hungarians. And then, of course, it's even more tragic that they actually missed the opportunities to get anything they were fighting for. They didn't get their duke. Um, the revolution failed. And so uh, all these confused characters who are um, funny and comical because of their change, swift change of identity, if you think it, uh, of the broader picture, it's actually sad, if not tragic. So mm-hmm. that's why I think comedy and tragic comedy. Mm-hmm. And you use plays or throughout the um, book um, and quite a wide variety of other literary forms, which we'll get to later. Uh, the next chapter you focus on Bosnia-Herzegovina, which you've already mentioned is, is the most Balkan of the Balkans. And you introduce the chapter by asking, who are the Bosnians and why did the majority of Bosnian Serbs and Bosnian Croats identify more strongly with Serbia and Croatia rather than with Bosnia itself? So how do you answer those questions? Um, It's difficult. I think I try to answer them. Um, And again, it goes back to the introduction where I say I would like to mediate. And um, to me, it's more important to come to a positionality than rather than having a position. So I really spend a lot of time answering the questions um, um, in a process, and I don't want to give ready answers. Historians, some historians give re- very, very um, instant answers, so to say, very explicit, very short, and people are very convinced. But the, that's not the case with the Balkans. I think with the Balkans, you have to be very cautious not to be, there are no binaries. So I do call that chapter where the Orient and Occident meet, right? I think that's the t- title of the chapter. But as a matter of fact, Bosnia is neither nor because of that encounter, or it's both, um, as well as, or either or, depending on the perspective. Now, why Croatians, Croats and Serbs uh, have identified the majority of them at least with the neighboring Croatian Serbia and not with Bosnia-Herzegovina, I think the answer is the nation-building process. The nation-building process in the 19th century, um, if you ignore the supranational structures like the Habsburg monarchy and the Ottoman Empire, which had a very different concept of nation, we can talk about it if, uh, if there's time later, uh, if we know those structures, um, the other concepts were actually ethnic and linguistic, and they were in, um, insisting on the ethnical um, uh, homogene- homogeneity of the nation. Germany would be one example, for example, not just in the Balkans, right, but also the Hungarians and, of course, the Serbs and, of course, then the Croats within the Habsburg monarchy, right? Uh, and although they were actually loyal to the emperor, the Croats in the Habsburg monarchy, they still felt this... Um, um, uh, right uh, to uh, appropriate their Croat brothers from over the border in Bosnia-Herzegovina because of the pre-Ottoman medieval identity, which recurred, and this is the why I say that recurrence of identities and conflicts is one of the typical processes uh, in the Balkans. They recurred uh, in the um, most um, uh, precarious moments of history, as it was the occupation of Bosnia-Herzegovina or the Second World War, or then the end of the 20th century with the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia. Now, there is something that we have to see about the nation. It seems to have a magnetic force as an identity mechanism for people. People um, seem to identify much more easily with that than with any other supranational structure. Look at what's happening in Europe now. Look at all these these uh, so-called right-wing populist parties are on the rise because people feel challenged. Uh, by the certainly the financial crisis, etc. And it's interesting that the, the moment that happens, they go back to the community of the nation and they feel that that's the protective form. Um, and of course, I disagree with that. But time and again, it seems that it has a magnetic force which you can't take away from people. 
And I think there is an emotional moment with, which we can't explain here, why the nation has such a strong appealing force to people. It's, um, um, I don't know, it's, it's psychological, I suppose. But in Bosnia, in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina's case, it's interesting because uh, the identities were formed, the national identities were formed along the um, uh, religious lines because the Ottomans actually introduced the concept of the nation which was based on religion. So all the orthodox subjects were actually one nation, one millet. All the um, Muslims were another. They did not have many Catholics except, for example, in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, and so that Ottoman concept of the nation, paired with the nation-building process from 19th century Europe, produced such identities, which then both in the 19th century and the end of the 20th century, and also in the Second World War, um, um, had a centrifugal role in the in Bosnia-Herzegovina. They were actually trying to um, join to the neighboring Croatia or Serbia. The, um, and of course, as far as the Muslims are concerned, that's also interesting. It's a unique concept in Europe that you have actually a nation and a religion equated. And that's uh, because it's uh, re- remained uh, from um, remnants from the Ottoman times. And it was taken over by the Habsburgs. And then, of course, Tito understood that he couldn't just uh, deprive these people of their identity. So it continued existing. But it's a concept which is... Um, problematic for the European concept of nation. Because imagine that happening in the United States, right? If someone is a Muslim, he's not, uh, he's also American. He can be an American. Whereas Bosnia, if you're a Muslim, you're a Bosniak. If you're a Serb, you're an Orthodox Serb, you're a Serbian and then Croatian. And uh, those are, that's the conundrum of these um, identities. So I think the nation building process in pair with uh, uh, the religious affiliation uh, raised at the level of um, nationality is uh, the reason for these um, um, diversing, diverging identities in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Mm-hmm. And what I found most intriguing about this chapter is that, as you mentioned, you use uh, this uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina as a place to look at the applicability of post-colonial theory in the Balkan region. So uh, can you uh, speak more about that, in particular the play Badger in the Court and the novel Bridge on the Drina that you use to um, uh, explore that applicability of post-colonial theory. Right, so the question that should be raised here is why people feel such apprehension, strong apprehension towards this theory. Maria Todorova does, because in her mind, if we did that, if we uh, applied post-colonial theory and if we talked about colonialism in the Balkans, that would automatically define the region as non-European. Because, of course, the modern word, the meaning of the word colonialism is pretty much a Western Christian empire goes overseas and... Uh, conducts a civilizing mission in quotation marks, Christianizes, etc. And so uh, in that sense, those uh, territories overseas, of course, were not European and they were Europeanized or Westernized by doing that. And that would apply to the Balkans. But I um, don't see it that way. Um, it's, of course, it's a tricky part. Uh, you shouldn't equate these mechanisms. Of course, the mechanisms of the British Empire in the Middle East or in India are different, or the French Empire somewhere in Polynesia uh, are different. And of course, the um, uh, vicinity, the geographical vicinity makes a lot of difference. Uh, and But actually, mostly I um, think that if you're going to uh, um, apply that approach, you have to have in mind that the colonized other is not homogenous. As a matter of fact, it's very diverse. So as I point out, uh, the Habsburg, there was a strong um, uh, um, protest against the Habsburg occupation of Bosnia-Herzegovina among the Muslims. And then the Habsburgs realized that it would be best for them to privilege the land-owning Muslim class 
And so then the Serbs were the ones who felt underprivileged, mostly the Serbs, because they were the most numerous community, because they remained dispossessed of land, because the Habsburgs uh, retained the feudal structures. And it's and because of that, I think uh, we have typical post-colonial narratives or even plays precisely by Serbian authors. So Petar Kocic is a uh, Serb by birth, whereas I would say Ivan is a Serb by choice, because the Croats and the Serbs even today can't uh, agree on whether he's a Croat or a Serb, because he was born to a Croatian family, but then he sort of, uh, the way he, he, he writes, he actually, the narrator's voice is Serbian, it's not Croatian, but he really felt as a Yugoslav, and to him that was the only solution to unify and to harmonize these uh, diverging identities, conflicting identities, diverging is not a strong enough word. Um, but I do uh, detect some typical um, post-colonial strategies narrative using the myth, right, uh, as opposed to official history, questioning the modernization, the ambivalent modernity that Baba talks about in his novel, whether certainly the Habsburgs were actually building a lot. Of course, they built a, a, a railway, as they always did. They were uh, uh, obsessed with building railways all over, over the, the monarchy. But on the other hand, um, they retain certain feudal structures um, and um, they, for example, they introduce German in the uh, official use, which um, um, practically uh, lowered the, um, whatever the language we're going to call is Bosnian now, I suppose, uh, to a local communication, right? And But at the same time, they tried to construct a political Bosnian nation and Andrzej was directly opposed to this. He thought that... Um, because he had a Yugoslav persuasion that the only way to really achieve equality would be in a larger structure where no one would feel under threat because uh, the structure would be larger, there would be larger borders, the Croats could easily gravitate towards Croatia and still uh, you would be able to retain the borders of Bosnia-Herzegovina. That was his idea and since that history has proved that the only possible functioning structure. Uh, Peter Kocic is a different case. Um, in that sense, he actually he doesn't write post-colonially because it's still the Habsburg monarchy is still there. So he questions the uh, so-called economic modernization. He questions the exploitation by the Habsburg authorities. And quite honestly, at first, I thought he was exaggerating because there are some rather emotional tones about how they have been literally ripped off by the Habsburg monarchy. But then I read uh, Peter Sugar's uh, analysis in the industrialization of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and it really looks that the Habsburgs actually uh, introduced too many uh, laws and regulations which were very detrimental to the economic um, uh, condition precisely of the Christian serfs on, on uh, Muslim uh, um, uh, estates. Um, and also they felt alienated because the new language that they tried to introduce as Bosnian and the new alphabet were far too similar to Croatian and Bosnian, and they felt, why would you introduce a third language? So they, they felt very alienated by that. And, um, I wish people had read this before the dissolution of the former Yugoslavia, or everyone who was involved in the process should have seen that, uh, you know, it's important to know history. I, I understand that now. Yeah, and all of these um, literary works, they span the historical um, time period, which I find very interesting that you'll position a, a 19th century and a 20th century work or, um, together. I, I think that does a lot to reveal the complexity of, of identities um, and how also these identities are um, changing at different points in time. Um, and from... Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is 
the most Balkan, so to speak, uh, you then move to Slovenia and Croatia, which you've already said are the, the least Balkan, in particular Slovenia. And there you use an, another interesting um, source, the libretto um, of Hofmethal's Arabella, and then also a novel, Ross Radetzky March. And what's interesting here, I think, is this this tension between the national identity and the Habsburg identity and how those two um, uh, ways in which people envisioned where they belonged or didn't belong was playing out. So can you talk more about that? Mm-hmm. So um, they are different. Although they're in the same chapter, they're actually very different. So um, I started with Croatia, so I should start with Croatia as well uh, in this interview. Um, it's interesting. Hoffman started, um, it's in, yeah, I have to say a few things about him. Um, he um, regretted the dis- dismemberment of the Habsburg monarchy. He was one of those writers uh, who believed that it was a tragic mistake. And there are some historians, by the way, he's not alone in this. And that, for example, Woodrow Wilson's uh, self-determination principle could have never been consistently applied. And that's why um, trying to apply it would only uh, cause problems. And, of course, in all those um, supposedly... Um, uh, homogeneous uh, new countries emerging from the Habsburg monarchy, there were very large minorities. And uh, then, of course, uh, you had the nationalisms, and uh, before you knew, World War II was there with the most uh, horrific form of nationalism. Right? Um, so he, um, however, he do- did see the mistakes that the Habsburgs made, or maybe simply they did not have enough time to apply consistently the theory that they claimed they applied, which was um, unity and diversity retaining the diversity and at the same time providing the supranational structure for each identity to feel uh, at ease, not threatened, but at the same time to have loyalty towards the the royal house of uh, Habsburg. Um, And so he took a very interesting region. It's a region of Croatia, uh, which is Slavonia. And Slavonia has more oriental elements because it was under Ottoman rule for roughly 150 years. And uh, he, what he does in the libretto, he says that practically you can, um, Europe can uh, profit from this um, region because this region has not been corrupted by the money economy. He was also very anti-capitalist, so I mean, he was a nobility, not a communist from that side of anti-capitalism. And he, he has some na- naive ideas, right? So he thought that the um, famous German culture, German language culture, would cultivate the other subjects, including the Slavs, but then they would be able to grant a greater sensitivity to the very, meanwhile, very cold world of um, money economy, of capitalism. And um, the corpus, the space that symbolizes that, is this Slavonia, which is not even um, a setting in the play, but it's just evoked through... um, uh, uh, telling of the of the main character who comes from there, and everyone uh, feels uh, a great appeal to this topos, which provides um, the right place uh, for the uh, harmonious, utopian, ideal uh, mixture of cultures, uh, which would be, roughly speaking, the German cultivated uh, yet somewhat uh, um, in- desensitized culture by the money economy and from Vienna, from the metropolis Vienna, and the still very um, nature-oriented, very emotional, very humane culture of Slavonia. Uh, He also, in this libretto, uh, proposes something which he talks about explicitly in his essays, The Idea of Europe, that uh, unlike in the old days when Austria was actually the bulwark to the Ottomans, it should now be a bridge to Asia, and he expresses a great admiration for Asia again, 
as uh, somewhere where spirituality is still very present, where people have not been corrupted by the money and reification of people because of the, the money economy. Uh, so that's Hoffmannsthal, and that's uh, as far as Croatia is concerned. Uh, as far as Slo- uh, Slovenia is concerned, in uh, fam- the famous um, von Trotter novels, one of them I, I actually, I think I got the most famous one, The Ratetsky March by uh, Josef Hort. Um, the most fascinating part there is that he talks about Slovenia, but uh, it's not really Slovenia at all because there are there is a strong Oriental element. There are people, there are women with hijabs and mosques, and you know that's not the case with Slovenia at all. But the the reason for it is because uh, his main character actually imagines Slovenia um, as the perfect again a perfect utopian space of the Habsburg policy of unity and diversity. He actually um, projects Bosnian traits onto uh, Slovenia because he believes in this idea that uh, the Habsburgs can really house all these different identities and can be like the father figure of, of and pr- protector of all these different identities. Um, the interesting thing there, on the other hand, is of course the loss of identity through ennoblement because the main character's grandfather saved the emperor's life. Um, he was... Uh, um, declared uh, what kind of, I don't know, he got a nobility title, I don't remember, count, I think. And um, from there on, he got detached from his rural Slovenian uh, origins as a Slovenian peasant. And the the important element here is that the Slovenian peasants were those who actually spoke the language, because the uh, middle class and the nobility, they were entirely Germanized. So there is another element here that is important. Uh, But by ennobling them, they practically take away um, their original identity and that doesn't end well because um, the whole supranational structure and the concept of unity and diversity, of course, crashes with the beginning of the First World War. But even before that, when the national paradigm is more and more asserted. And uh, so he remains like some sort of a Don Quixote which be, who believes in this ideal which had been already dead. Um, but there is no mockery, of course, in the novel. Um, and I like, um, and that's what I discuss in this uh, chapter, it's important to remember that none of those concepts, the ethnic nation or the supranational nation, uh, none of those are entirely natural. They all have to be constructed. And the question is, which one you're going to choose that will be best for the people? Uh, and I think history keeps making mistakes in those um, things. And especially now in the former Yugoslavia, it was especially visible. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, um, Von Trotta, the, the grandson, the youngest character, is, is a very good example of that. Mm-hmm. And that actually goes right back to then the 1990s and the Balkan Wars. And you return to the 1990s, uh, but from an Austrian perspective and step away from the, um, in a sense, internal views of themselves, of people within the Balkan region and look at how the um, Austrians and in particular several documentary style projects are um, viewing the Balkan region in the 1990s. So can you describe those um, stereotypes really that they are applying to that region and, and how those are being um, communicated through these Austrian projects and Austrian perspective? Right. So the sixth chapter is about actually the media coverage on the Balkans, but of course through literary work. And there is something which is uh, another travelogue, which is on the other hand written by a journalist. So I place it here. Originally it was in the first chapter, but I realized that here it's more important because then I could deal with the critique of the journalistic uh, stereotypes and uh, frozen images uh, that were then uh, present in the literary works that I discussed. Now, the thing is here, 
the sixth chapter actually begins with the outbreak of the First World War. And uh, um, uh, so the Serbian diary by Roda Roda is actually the one um, a diary which discusses the uh, um, well initial progress. And then, of course, it ended with the defeat of the um, Imperial and Royal KNK Army of the Habsburg Monarchy in, uh, in Serbia in the first year of the war, when things were still unclear how things would proceed. Um, and he uses precisely stereotypes which had been uh, put in place uh, uh, after the occupation of Bosnia Herzegovina. And that's the interesting part. That previously there were no real strong stereotypes, negative stereotypes about the Serbs in the Habsburg monarchy. But after the occupation of Bosnia Herzegovina, because both states, the Habsburg monarchy and Serbia, um, uh, claimed uh, their rights to the territory of Bosnia Herzegovina, and as I say, none, neither of them actually had the right to it. Um, they have uh, the relationships between these two countries have been uh, antagonized to a very strong extent, and then um, uh, a number of stereotypes were present in the print media, in the printing press, in the in the papers um, in those days uh, on a daily basis. And then um, in the Roda Roda takes them over and um, describes the Serbs as um, a nation desperately in need of a civilizing mission. And so this war is more a civilizing mission than really a war. That's uh, really in a gist what he's trying to prove throughout his, uh, his diary. So he shows compassion for the Serbian civilians. He criticizes the Serbian politicians uh, for their failed politics. And that's why all these victims uh, go on their account, because it's their fault and it's not the Habsburg monarchy's fault that there is this war going on in Serbia, in which really the um, Imperial Royal Army was actually occupying uh, Serbian territory. Uh, and that style of uh, journalism um, is severely criticized in Karl Kraus' The Last Days of Humankind, um, a fascinating play, on, um, depending on the edition, between 800 and 1,000 pages. And he talks, uh, he criticizes uh, not only Roda Roda, but also Alita Schalek, uh, a famous correspondent of the Dinoe Freie Presse, the, a famous journal from uh, Vienna, which still exists today, but it was very big on uh, war reports. Uh, in uh, precisely during the First World War. And um, he's very concerned about the lack of rationality and the emotional language of journalism uh, in those days. And in that, I find him also very modern. And, of course, uh, uh, the use of um, phot photographs and images to influence people to become more belligerent, to uh, go back to their primordial instincts with the famous photograph of uh, this Italian irredentist, Cesare Battisti, um, uh, he's hanging dead on the photograph and they're selling that as a postcard. And to him, that is actually the reason why the place called the last day of the humankind, not that humankind will disappear, but the humankind, at least the Occidental, has executed its own uh, civilization, uh, their own civilization. That's what uh, he talks about. That's why the last days of humankind. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, the uh, interactions with the Balkans are very interesting. Um, historically speaking, he was very well informed. First, there were the Balkan Wars, uh, uh, one year before the beginning of the First World War, and there were a lot of Austrian correspondents uh, in the Balkans, and he noticed that sort of, he called it impressionist style, journalistic style, where they use a lot of uh, emotional adjectives and write like writers, rather than very rational, um, sober uh, reporting, which he expects from, from journalists. Uh, and then, of course, I go uh, to the 1990s again with Handke, uh, with his play, um, um, a ride in a, 
dugout, voyage by dugout. Uh, the titles of Kanke's works are very strange. So there are different uh, translations, but this one has been actually officially translated by Scott Abbott and it's called Voyage by Dugout. And of course, it's very difficult to imagine what that could possibly mean and how it would possibly relate to the, to the wars. So again, um, Handke was ostracized because he um, challenged the media reports and he said that he does not believe in the binary opposition of these are the evil ones, the, the bad guys, and those are the good guys. And uh, uh, I mean, I have never really uh, followed his interviews. I have never been really interested in his political views, what he says about this politician or that politician. But I find his um, uh, literary text, and he always um, advises people to read his literature rather than his interviews, because he says that he's not himself in the interviews and he's mo the most valuable things he has to say, he says in his text. And so this Voyage by Dugout is actually a utopian project for the uh, former Yugoslavia, how people should uh, come back to their own selves, to not uh, only to the pre-war state um, of um, to peace simply after the wars, but also the pre-war state of direct communication between people who had lived on the same soil for centuries, who know each other certainly much better than people from outside who come and try to... Um, uh, to to offer some sort of peace agreements. He says that no peace agreement uh, will be uh, of any value if people in the locality, and that's a very important concept uh, coming from Baba, don't get along or they don't come back to their pre-war state of um, a common mutual uh, mutual code, mutual cultural code of communication and understanding of um, this very accelerated history in Balkans, I would say, of changing rules and, and disruptions, that they have to understand that they have all been victims and perpetrators, to understand the, um, the constant change of roles and to understand that uh, they should go back to themselves rather than to uh, outside um, political uh, actors. Um, he was um, criticized for putting things in a relative perspective because he did not uh, criticize the Serbs strongly enough. And like I said, I really avoided, I don't know if I managed to deal with daily politics, not because I'm afraid that it could be misunderstood, that too, but also because I, this is not a book about daily politics. I'm trying to give a picture of the Balkans, which would be, uh, well, I don't want to say which would last forever, but would give a... Um, much, uh, it's not about the Balkan Wars only. It's, it's uh, about the Balkans and the interaction between the different cultural identities uh, altogether. And I think Hanke has understood that history better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And you, you've referred to this um, utopian vision of a place in which all these nationalities can live together, which the Austria, Austria Habsburg Empire was supposedly represented, and yet this is also a place in which that all fell apart so violently. Um, so how, how you bring this together as an axis of utopia and dystopia, this, yeah. this Balkan and European sort of um, edges where they um, meet up. So talk more about that, this idea of, of utopia and dystopia in um, this region. Yeah, it is very important. Um, it, is, it is one of the first things that I've actually, before I even wrote the dissertation, and then of course I changed a lot for the book, I had that uh, concept in my mind. It was almost intuitive, more than cognitive, the dystopian utopia. So uh, obviously the coverage, the media coverage of the Balkans presents 
the Balkans as a, uh, I say, either eternal or recurring dystopia. So Dorova talks about the travelogues where the Balkan region was envisioned as a non-European, ambivalent, culturally ambivalent, even racially ambivalent, right? And I say that with the beginning of the 20th century, um, also with the, um, uh, with the rise of the media, maybe because these two terms coincided, the um, uh, falling apart of the big empires, which of course produced violence, and the media coverage, the Balkans have been stigmatized as this region of recurring dystopia, of re recurring violence. And I think uh, you don't see much more about the Balkans in the media than that. Um, on the other hand, each and every writer, uh, especially those from the Habsburg monarchy or Austria, uh, always has always seen the Balkans as a utopian place. And I'm very fascinated by that. I mean, if we uh, make a test, we'll see. Hanske and Hoffmannsthal and Roth and even Kraus in his very dystopian um, play, has actually a very short scene where the Serbian women offer the Austrian journalist um, jam, homemade jam, and that's a utopian moment uh, which he hopes that will uh, um, uh, take over after the end of the World War One. that would uh, uh, the uh, dominance, predominance of the media discourses will disappear and everyone will come back to the direct interaction. Um, and I was really fascinated, uh, to be quite honest, I thought that these depictions were rather, rather uh, naive before I uh, started analyzing them better. And then I realized that these writers, perhaps the Austrian ones, know very well the history, the very precarious history of the Balkans. And precisely because of that, they are offering these utopian projects, which are extremely, extremely valuable to me. I think that they are more valuable than any political projects because they talk about the genuine communication, intercultural and interethnic communication of small peoples. And Hanke is here especially good, who've been ruled by different uh, external um, empires. And they have to understand it's them who stay here, they persist, and the empires are um, uh, ephemeral. They, they come and go, but we always stay here together and we have to find a way to communicate with each other. And I have never seen this kind of utopian project in any other writer. And I, I find it extremely valuable, and I think that's probably one of the greatest achievements of literature, to offer the possibility of imagining a utopian uh, existence, coexistence, peaceful utopian coexistence between people who are really more similar than different. We have built over the centuries a mutual code. We do understand each other. There is a this um, consciousness of us having been here for centuries and having shared all the different rules on, on the one or the other side. And uh, he noticed that better than anyone else and actually made me aware of that. And I have come to look at the region with different eyes because um, there is a strong complex of inferiority uh, in the peoples who come from the Balkans because it's such a dysfunctional dystopian region. The states are totally out of order, dysfunctional, like I said. Uh, but I realized that, first of all, that's the postmodern procedure in Huntley. He never puts a hierarchy in the spaces. So Western Europe is not hierarchically higher than the Balkans. There is an equality, and this is this postmodern metonymical procedure. And uh, he, without, actually, he condemns nationalism. He makes you feel proud of where you come from without being a nationalist. That is something that uh, I, no one else has achieved, and he, that's been neglected with Hanske because of his somewhat odd political views. I think that's quite a shame. <laughs> that's really fascinating. Um, having read the book, then to hear you frame that, and, and I can see how that coming through the book now, uh, thinking back on it. Um, and you end the book with the discussion of, care, 
uh, comparisons between Yugoslavia and the Habsburg Empire, and in particular the myth building around um, the persons of Tito and Francis Joseph. So how are people positioning those two, and how do the um, Roth novella, The Emperor's Monument, and the film Tito and Me resist those myths, um, each um, the, with the person that they're addressing? Um, first, I was a bit afraid to make this comparison because you would, uh, you'd have to admit it's rather far-fetched that the one is a communist leader and the other one was an emperor. And so, of course, the communists are against empires. <laughs> uh, and Tito was communist already during the days of the Habsburg monarchy. He was actually a Habsburg subject. But then I was very fortunate. But there was something that told me there are, there's some connection. And then there I read this essay by um, the Vojvodina intellectual Ivan Ivani, who was also Tito's associate, and he said that actually Tito did not mind the comparison with Francis Joseph at all, and he liked to be called the last Habsburg emperor. My explanation is uh, that um, the concept of unity and diversity, which failed in the Habsburg monarchy, unfortunately also in the former Yugoslavia, he tried to actually give a more local, a more authentic quality to this concept in the former Yugoslavia, because there was no um, empire. Uh, these were all small peoples governed by other empires, and that was the idea very similar to what Hanke actually said, that we can now find our own identity by working together, and there would be this unity and diversity, which was called brotherhood and unity. Even the second word is the same, actually, as in the Habsburg slogan. And um, I think that was the, the lesson he learned from the Habsburg monarchy, um, and uh, also I'm talking about the Austrian uh, social democracy, which applied the principle of personality, where you acknowledge the person's national ethnic identity, and at, at the same time you're asking the person to have loyalty towards the supranational structure, but he also made sure that the boundaries of the, each of the six republics were actually uh, well-established and well-defined. Um, he acknowledged the some sort of um, maybe not autonomy, but a certain um, independent well independence. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to define uh, uh, to define that. But he certainly did not want to um, any nation to be um, uh, to have a hegemony over the other nations. And he was very careful about that. And it's not an easy job. And like I said, eventually it failed because it was maybe far too closely related to him. Then economic problems started, and people, like I said, whenever there is an economic crisis, they go back to the nation as some sort of a protector, some sort of a family structure. Uh, and it always proved fatal. But, uh, <laughs> somehow people did not learn from history, and those are some instincts which uh, people can't um, fight. Um, so um, Josef Roth um, deals with the myth, uh, of course, in all his novels. Also in the Radetzky March, he deals with the myth of the emperor, and with the Empress uh, Monument, he deals uh, with this uh, situation uh, slightly differently. Uh, what seems to be an absurd uh, and, because of that, a grotesque uh, and uh, humorous situation of a person bearing the monument of an emperor, because he's so closely attached to the symbolic value of this uh, monument after the dissolution of the Habsburg monarchy, and, of course, after the emperor's death, uh, actually uh, shows a process of such high identification with uh, the not only the emperor, but also the supranational um, uh, structure of the Habsburg state and the ideology of unity and diversity, that it becomes more touching than, uh, than funny. It's not uh, parodic. It's actually, um, I would say, very emotional. Uh, and it shows, because the question has been raised, uh, what happens when such uh, structures fall apart and people who really identified with the, let's say, state ideology then are left without anything. And this is one possible answer, what happens. And I think Rod deals with that very skillfully. So um, 
he, uh, the, the Count Morstan, who identifies with the Emperor, understands now that finally the time has come to um, eliminate the, the monument, uh, and he understands the new time has come. The Emperor doesn't, the Empire doesn't exist any longer. But we will bury this, and this burial has an unbelievable um, cathartic effect on me, at least as a reader, it had. Uh, everyone who was present at the burial of the monument started sobbing because they felt that we did this now in a proper way. We actually um, did it dignified because we paid homage to the legacy, to the cultural legacy and to the history of um, they felt protected. There were a lot of Jews in that um, village, for example, who always felt very protected by the Habsburg monarchy, but also the other nationalities. No one objected to this decision. Um, and uh, I think that it says that um, identities, which they're always constructed, each and every identity, obviously, national, supranational, but they do then leave their traces. So we can't just dismiss them and say and make fun of people who still identify know, with Yugoslavia or with the Habsburg monarchy, not any longer with the Habsburg monarchy, I suppose. But even Ivani is someone who understands that, that people... Um, he understands why people identified emotionally with the Habsburg monarchy and with the former Yugoslavia. It's the same idea of unity and diversity. Now, on the other hand, the film Tito and Me is actually a very different story. Um, it, um, very early in the film, it becomes clear that um, the main character moves from illusion to knowledge and he stops idealizing, idealizing um, the... Um, former Yugoslav president, Josip Rostito, and uh, he understands that he's um, a ruler of an authoritarian uh, regime. And uh, it's a very different take on the uh, on the myth. I think one of the reasons is, we've discussed this in different conferences, the Habsburg monarchy, we would probably say, lasted for a thousand years. And considering that Peter's regime, Peter himself, was in power only for 35, seven years, I'm not sure uh, exactly, I think he still left enormously strong traces in the hearts and minds, and that's why I think uh, even the the director is a bit ambivalent because the fact that he actually makes this film and talks about his fascination or someone's fascination with Tito as a child and his public persona um, shows about the degree to which the uh, this um, president actually left his his mark his trace. But more importantly, I talk about the succeeding politicians in each of these nation states that's emerged. Uh, I think, honestly, very few of them did not try to emulate what Peter did. They all wanted to have this um, effect on their respective nations of someone who protects them. And undoubtedly, the regime was authoritarian. Um, but at the same time, there were some, uh, some freedoms, some liberties, uh, which were not uh, expected in a communist country. And paired, of course, with absolute social security, no wonder that people <laughs> still feel those who remember the regime uh, are not necessarily alienated by it. Uh, I think more um, young people are um, more likely to describe Tito as a dictator, and usually they say, but my grandmother disagrees. <laughs> so it's all about an interpretation, especially. Uh, I think it's very unfortunate that there have been very few interpretations about Tito's persona. I find him a very, very interesting politician. Mm. Well, hopefully there will be more at some point because he is a fascinating figure yeah. um, in the 20th century in Europe. And so in this book, you're tracing these themes of belonging, unbelonging, multiple belongings. And as you've said, this layered 
senses of identity and, and shaping over time by um, all kinds of various forces. And you do that through such a wide range of literary works. I, I don't think I've um, read um, a, a book that uses such a variety plays and librettos and novels and novellas and operetta and travelogues and journalistic media. Why was it important to you to draw on such a wide variety? Why not just, you know, stick with plays, um, for example? Why did you look for such a diverse range of literary forms? I don't think that it was um, that I actually sat down and just, uh, thought, okay, I'm going to include all these different genres, but uh, it was necessary, for example, to include um, Andrew's novel. So you've got the novel there already. It was necessary to include uh, Roth's um, uh, the, the Empress Monument, so you've got the novella. And of course, with the travelogues, uh, you would necessarily include them because uh, they are the ones to give you a very good picture of how people imagine the Balkans. And of course, it's also about the imagination uh, of this region. But more importantly, I was trying to actually mediate, as I say in my introduction, between different discourses. And so also I include a lot of historical explanations, of the historical interpretation there. I had to learn very fast because I'm not a historian. I'm a literary scholar um, by vocation. And uh, there I had to learn very fast. I was very fortunate to be able to take a course with Professor Ingrao, who offered an enormously rich bibliography, which first terrified me. But then you find your way through it and then you feel very sovereign and I feel much more, much safer because of that, that I can actually argue with a certainty. So we certainly wouldn't uh, dismiss historiography, but it's important to see how historiography describes the region, how one genre like a travelogue describes, how a play describes, and how a novel and a novella describes the region. All these are different perspectives, different discourses, as we call them now. And I think that can, uh, only that can give a more faceted picture of, uh, of the region, whether it's complete, it's, uh, it's another question. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a historian and not a literary scholar, but I found um, reading uh, your analysis of all of these different literary works really quite fascinating and just the variety of of literary forms, um, uh, an interesting way of looking at this region. So thank you very much for your time and today and um, doing this interview. I enjoyed reading the book and hopefully our listeners will also uh, go out and read the book as well. um, Those who are interested in the Balkan region. And so before we close, why don't you tell us what you're working on now? Well, <laughs> I think I have to focus on uh, one thing only because actually I have several projects in mind. Um, as a matter of fact, I would like to compare Popovich's play, The Patriots, to a play which um, was written in exactly the same period in the revolution by an Austrian, proper Austrian author, Nestor. I'm actually presenting on it at a conference in Vienna at the beginning of July. And I would like to compare the two different genres and the two different um, approaches uh, towards the nation. And I think comparison is a very good uh, way of learning more about uh, the original uh, object, because, of course, these two works have been written in exactly the same year, probably, and by people who probably don't know each other, although I I assume that Popovic was influenced by the Austrian uh, playwrights, and I assume that he has read Nestorovic's play. So maybe I will also try to see whether there are some cases of taking over or modifying some of that. The other thing that I'm very um, interesting in is that I would like to actually um, write something about Istvan Sabo's Colonel Riddle. I don't know if you've seen the film. It's about, uh, it's very similar, but also very different from uh, Josef Roth's novellas and novels on the, uh, uh, on the emperor. 
there is a character there who is also very much um, fascinated by the Emperor and builds his entire identity uh, on the basis of this symbolic figure. But it's also in, in the last days of the empire. Um, but what I'm interested in is actually uh, Sabo's attitude towards history, because he mixes up different things that uh, confuse interpreters. Uh, he presents the Archduke Francis Ferdinand as an anti-Semite, which he wasn't. And I think, and then I read an interview with him saying that he actually um, included some ty- some uh, Stalinist periods in the film without telling us, of course. So all that merges into one in a film which is essentially about the Habsburg monarchy. But then you wonder why there are some uh, historical inconsistencies by Sabo, who is a very good, um, who is very uh, knowledgeable about her Habsburg history. So that's another thing. And then um, since I'm actually very interested in theatre, I would like to work more on the this uh, metaphor of the world as a theatre, the Teatro Mundi metaphor. Specifically, I would like to expand on Karl Krauss's um, use of that in relation also to, to the media. That remains a fascination. I only touched uh, upon that in the book. I would like to continue doing that. And there are some other things that they are uh, on the back burner. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing more of your scholarly work in the future. Thank and thank you again for um, joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Amanda. It was a pleasure. And thank you also to our listeners. And uh, please join us again next month when we have another conversation about a new book in East European Studies.